early morning hours on May 7, 2021, the Colonial Pipeline in the eastern part of the United States fell victim to a ransomware attack. Here's NBC. Colonial discovered at 5 a.m. on May 7th that it was hit with ransomware and it shut down the pipeline remarkably quickly within 15 minutes because the company didn't know whether the hackers got only into the data system or also into the computer system that controls the actual pipeline operation. The situation made international news. Here's the BBC. The biggest fuel pipeline system in the United States remains crippled by a cyber attack that's been called the worst of its kind in the US. Colonial pipeline tonight still not pumping fuel across America thanks to a cyber attack. Four days after online hackers infiltrated its systems, its pipeline is still shut down. A development serious enough to lead President Biden to speak out this evening. The Department of Energy is working directly with Colonial to get the pipelines back online and operating at full capacity as quickly and safely as possible. The FBI also is engaged to assess the, uh, and address this attack. So what would you do if you were in charge of managing such an important resource? Multiple sources tell CBS News that Colonial Pipeline paid a multi-million dollar ransom to the hackers who crippled its network. Here's NBC again. So the CEO says he made the decision to pay the ransom the very next day. Here's what he said. I made the decision to pay and I made the decision to keep the information about the payment as confidential as possible. It was the hardest decision I've made in my 39 years in the energy industry. And I know how critical our pipeline is to the country and I put the interests of the country first. Indeed, the attack on Colonial Pipeline was in some ways an outlier. It was a critical resource, and its attack inspired the U.S. government's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, to double down on best practices, because there were other attacks at the time as well. Here's NPR. But this attack is just the latest example of ransomware incidents in the U.S., by one estimate, in just the past year, more than 113 federal, state, and municipal agencies, 500-plus health facilities, and more than 1,600 schools, colleges, and universities have all been attacked with ransomware. This is the story of what happens when ransomware hits critical infrastructure and why mapping IT security to legacy OT doesn't always work. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Error Code. So I am John Taylor, right? I go by JT. Um, I'm a director and principal of security here at Versa Networks. So Versa Networks is a uh, is is the unified SASE um, vendor out there, right? We're number one, right, in that space uh, today, according to you know uh, sources like Del Oro and, and and stuff like that. We own the market share. Um, in my personal opinion, right? So uh, in the industry. I have not seen a security platform that's as tightly integrated um, as well as bringing to bear uh, the, the capabilities as what Versa has today.
So it's a full bore security solution from both on-prem as well as from an SSE to really give you a SASE uh, platform. Um, it works very well and it's very uh, versatile, right? When it works in the IT side. So it works a lot with enterprise networks, right? MSPs and things like that but it fits so incredibly well in the OT environment too, right? So it absolutely has the ability to adhere to, um, you know, uh, legacy architectures like the Purdue model or IEC 62445 and stuff like that. Um, but it also has the ability to enhance that in ways that we haven't thought about in the OT environment um, in probably the last 10 years or more, right? So let's start off with the definition of SASE. It's an actual term, right? Yeah, so so SASE is Secure Access Service Edge, right? It's a combination of SD WAN um, for edge routing and edge and uh, and edge networking, as well as the cloud-based security, which Gartner has defined as what we know in the industry as Security Service Edge. Um, security Service Edge is nothing more than than really having um, secure web gateways, right? Um, that provide things like your firewalls of service. Your uh, and that is next generation, you know, firewalling, next generation IDS, IPS based services, URL filtering, sandboxing, and more. Right, it's what you would normally see on a, on a traditional on premise next gen firewall. Um, but with that, though, uh, we are also able to bring to bear, you know, um, um, DLP solutions, right? We can bring in CASB solutions, right? Or cloud access security broker, um, and we can actually bring that into the solution and enhance what we've always done from a next-gen firewalling side. What really makes it um, more profound is, is that SSE becomes elastic. So we build it usually either in containerized vehicles, right, or something like that. And so it actually can scale to a customer's demand. You're not hindered by the bare metal products that you would normally traditionally put on site, right? So if, you're, uh, if your device was only capable of two gig, right, you would reach that two gig threshold and then you would start having um, um, customer satisfaction issues. In the cloud, you might get two gig, but if you need to burst to four gig or burst to 10 gig, right, in some way, shape or form, you have the ability to do that because of that elastic nature of the cloud architecture. So I asked John for his definition of what we say when we say OT. When someone talks to me about OT, the, the first things I start thinking about is um, industries, right? So I look at like oil and gas industries. I look at architectures like SCADA environments, right? And things of that nature. Um, I look at plant floor um, environments, right? As well, um, I don't necessarily, I, I don't look at like, you know, security cameras, right, as being part of OT. I'd look at that as being more of IoT. They're still, they're, they're devices that you will use, right? But OT environments really are legacy operational technology, right? Um, if I walk into a, a plant floor, I see, like I said before, the arm that's welding a, a, a car door on, right? Or I see machinery like CNC machines, right? Or, or automated lathes and stuff like that. That's really operational stuff because it only does really one job, right? Um, and it's and it's there to help produce and, and manufacture things. Um, SCADA environments, right, as well, right? You know, energy substations um, from, um, you know, whether it be from the energy company or, or however that is, right? You know, that's operational technology. It has one job. It does one thing, right? And it will always only do that one thing. And it's an air-gapped, you know, system. So 
to me, right, operational technology has to deal with those industrial controls, right? It doesn't necessarily deal with, um, you know, machinery such as what we see in the medical side, right? Um, like, you know, heart pumps or uh, things like CAT scans, MRIs, right? You know, those types of smarter machines. Um, and I say smarter just because, you know, they're feeding, you know, they, they have the ability to feed kind of multiple different streams of data back into a head-end unit. And they're usually controlled by a smart computer. Um Industrial controls usually are not controlled by a smart computer. They're programmed by a smart computer. It lives on some type of PLC somewhere, right? And then that's where, you know, the PLC continues to do its one job that it's meant to do across board. So it sounds like we're saying that this is IoT for a very specific industry. Um, so OT, right? Like I said before, OT is a lot of that industry stuff, and that mechanical and the 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 mechanical arms and the conveyor belts and you know things like that. That a lot of that is coming back into what is IIoT now, right? So the industrial Internet of Things. Um, what we're still seeing more in the OT side is a lot of that legacy stuff. Stuff that I can, you know, if let's say General Electric, for instance, right? They put out a new robotic arm. Right. A lot of that stuff now, they, they're actually releasing, you know, signatures to actually be able to identify that that robotic arm now. Right. Because it's newer. They're categorizing it. Right. You know, it's catalog. They sell that catalog out to, to multiple different vendors. Um, so you're seeing a lot of the newer stuff being associated to more IIoT. Right. Where a lot of the older stuff that's 60, 70 years old is still really kind of lumped into OT right now. And of course, um, industries, too, are, are actually being encouraged to actually start swapping out a lot of that stuff. You know, you need the newer um, solutions. Right. You don't need a, if I'm putting in a new lathe or I'm putting in a new CNC, you know, type machine or something like that. I can categorize that. I can see that. I can use some of the IT controls that are there. Without that, I manually have to go through and write a definition for that machine. And every machine is different, right? Because it operates differently. Because between a two-year span, um, that's a um, uh, between two years of, of, of a span, right? I've, I've 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 changed either the code, I've changed the way that the machines talk, I've changed the ports in which they talk on, right? So it, it becomes very difficult, right, to really lump those in. Medical is the same thing, right? Um, we've seen a lot of things like on the IoT side there, which we just generically lumped in. Newer devices, right? This is one of the reasons why we're seeing that break. Uh, you know, and people are actually kind of talking about, well, I can now put this in an IoT type format. Is even on the medical side, we're still we're seeing more categorization, right? We're seeing those categories being sold, right, to IoT vendors, right, to be able to identify those devices and then write, you know, complex uh, complex security controls around that. So. I got a feeling that OT, right, eventually will probably in it will, will either become a, a, a master set, right, um, or, or become a top level branch. And then you'll start seeing where IIoT will live and you'll start seeing where other things will be. And then IoT will do the same thing. You'll have a master or, or, or a, a superset, right, for IoT. And then IOMT and things like that will also start living there as well. Or it may combine right within the next decade. No one knows quite yet because it's still it's still evolving right as we're talking about it. Along the way, I think John mentioned a couple of new acronyms in the IoT space. There is, right? So so uh, we'll say that a lot of things are being lumped into IoT. They started getting lumped into IoT here recently. Um, a lot of companies are kind of coming out and they're talking about uh, how they can identify IoT devices, right? And so... The question is, is what really is an IoT device, right? And then when I, when I would talk to uh, 
to customers in the OT space, right, of my manufacturing, it was like, can I identify, you know, the the mechanical arm that picks up, you know, big rolls of, of film, right, for instance, and moves it from one location to the other? Or can I can I identify my conveyor belt, right, that I have to, you know, program to, to send packages, you know, across board, right? And then you, so what we've done in the industry is we've started looking at IoT and OT, and we've said, there has to be IIoT now or industrial, you know, Internet of Things, right? So that's incorporating a lot of things that we're seeing on that plant floor side and the manufacturing, a lot of the newer devices that are coming out. And we've actually segmented medical off of that as well, right? So now we have what is called IOMT or Internet of Medical Things, right? So now the medical industry, because of a lot of the ransomware attacks and you know, things that have happened here recently, we're really starting to make a focus on what medical is. So you know, kind of getting back into, you know, things like the Colonial Pipeline Spur, right, is it made us start looking at industrial Internet of Things, right, to say, how do we protect, you know, that industrial side, right, and those industrial controls that we have out there, and how do we write architectures, and and how do we uh, provide software and, and monitoring mechanisms and security controls, right, for the medical side, because that's a different compliance, right? Because now we're bringing in things like HIPAA and so forth on that front as well. So we have to start looking at the industry, right, in multiple different segments. And I I think we're going to see more of those industry segments coming out, right, within the next few years. So one of the themes we'll pursue in this episode is this idea that you can't just take your traditional enterprise IT and map it over to IoT or especially OT. It's very hard to do that, right? Because unfortunately with OT, right, or IOT or or even now IOMT and, and IIOT, right? Because we're starting to see that 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 big shift, right? Um Unfortunately, with those devices, they're they're purpose built, um, and what that really means is a lot of them run a, a, a very thin Un, uh, Unix Linux kind of kernel. Um, it's it's supposed to do uh, you know one or two different operations. Let's look in the uh, in the case of a manufacturing plant, right? Um, these machines are could be 20, 30, 40, 60 years old right now, right? They're mechanical machines. We're enabling them to have. Um, you know, some type of network access, right? Because they've never been that way before. We're actually applying a circuit board there. We create things like PLCs, right? That that you know, basically operate these, this machinery, right? Whether it be in a plant floor in building cars, right? In the case of, you know, in, in, in some factories, right? You might be building things like fire retardant materials, right? And so forth. Um, but it's a lot, like I said, it's it's very much automated. So I've talked before about how legacy IoT and OT devices have been resource constrained in the past. They only have resources for the one job that they're supposed to do. That leaves little room for security. So those PLCs, right, or those types of machines that is controlling, you know, that the machinery have a purpose-built job. So why do I need to have a full-blown Windows operating system or a full-blown, you know, Mac OS X or something like that? I need to have something that does its job, but the problem is, is I can't put the traditional IT, you know, security around that. I can't put a um, an antiviral solution, right, you know, on something that's a very a very thin Linux machine, right. So I have to do something from the networking side um, to really be able to architect around that, and so hence the reason why we have separated. OT architectures, right? Um, aside from what we do in traditional IT today, because we just don't have those security, uh, the security mechanisms and those security controls, you know, for that segment of the industry. A lot of these devices, when they were first connected to the internet, 
all connections was good. It was very permissive. There wasn't RBAC. There wasn't IAM. There wasn't anything like that. Now, that's a big problem. Trust. Yeah, it's it's very, um, we, we call it more implicit trust, right? You know, because um, we figured these machines are running, are, are just, I, I don't want to call them dumb, but they kind of are, right? Do we have these dumb machines, right? They run this uh, program that's only doing one or two different things. Uh, we've done what we can to harden the kernel, right? So we've protected, you know, it as much as possible just from a coding aspect. But if someone gets into it, like what damage can it really do, right? So let's just implicitly trust, you know, these wonderful um, devices, right, that is controlling mechanical arms or something like that. Um, we never really thought about it in the past of what if someone was to weaponize one of these, right? Or what if someone was to use it as a as a as an entry point, right, back into the network to exfil data? That was never something on the OT side that ever concerned anybody. So the classic example here is Mirai. This was a botnet that leveraged a flaw in a white-labeled chip that was sold and put into several thousand surveillance cameras worldwide. So the flaw in one chip, it was weaponized. But the attack, it was external in the sense that it was a denial-of-service attack on a website. What I'm wondering is if John has ever seen anything where someone has weaponized an IoT or OT device in order to get access to the internal network of an organization. So it all depends on what your definition of weaponization is, right? Um, so people think about weaponization as exactly what you just said. I I configure a uh, an OT device, right, that can now start doing distributed denial of service attacks, right, across multiple different OT devices, right, from cyber warfare. Um, some people actually look at weaponization, you know, into the point of I have a a piece of machinery, right? So I have a mechanical arm that welds doors onto a car, for instance, right? On an assembly line. What happens if that arm starts picking up a door and hurls it, you know, 50 feet across the uh, across the plant floor, right? So uh, that's the reason why I always say it all depends on what your true definition of weaponization really is. Is it into to cause, you know, physical harm to someone or, or even cyber harm right across board? Um, what we have seen in the industry is taking, uh, I'll, I'll use some of the um, the more profound attacks out there, right? But we've utilized like uh, the Colonial Pipeline, right? Is it weaponization? Well, kind of, right? Because now you're starting to see where we're having ransomware, right? It's being injected um, and, and so forth and now attacking the OT environment um, or potentially attacking the OT environment um, due to the fact of, uh, you know, the, the segmentation properties right between IT and OT and, of course, the security side on the OT side just wasn't there. Right. So I'm not I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not seeing, you know, specific OT environments and, and, and uh, OT operating systems. Right. You know, being used for things like that. We see that all the time in case at DEF CON. Uh, when I was there this past year, um, they had multi. They actually had an ICS village, right, and uh, and an OT village that was there, and showing how to weaponize these types of devices, right. We're not seeing as much of it right now and being publicized, right. I don't think it's um it's come into the light as this is 100% your entry point, but we're starting to see more, like I said, in the case of Colonial Pipeline, right, and look at things like Stuxnet that was, you know, what is out years ago, right, uh, for, for nuclear reactors and whatnot, and how that affected the, uh, um, you know, how that affected, you know, nation states. Uh, 
but we're seeing targets toward that now, right? So when we're, the more and more we see to that, the more and more we tighten down our IT environments, the more and more we're going to open up OT, right? To become that point of, I would say that point of compromise. So just a point of clarification, with the Colonial Pipeline, as we heard in the setup piece at the beginning, it was an enterprise accounting system that was held for ransom. And the ransomware didn't trickle down to the actual pipeline. The sensors keeping the oil and gas flowing, they were not directly affected by the ransomware. It wasn't affected, right, directly, but here was the problem with Colonial Pipeline. They had to shut the entire thing down, so they had to shut the entire pipeline down, right? Because the problem was is that there wasn't the proper segmentation guards right in place, and there was a fear that that ransomware could could propagate into the OT environment, and at that point in time could actually house um, you know things like the emergency shutoff valves, right, and the emergency shutoff systems. And they wouldn't be able to stop the flow if necessary, right? So that's where we start getting into the weaponization idea. If I can actually traverse into that OT environment, and in the case that from a pipeline perspective, I can't shut down emergency, you know, or, or, or have my emergency services shut down various areas of a pipeline in case of a leak or something like that. Imagine, right, from a weaponization aspect, what if I increased the pressure in the pipeline in certain places and I caused a rupture? Well, that doesn't necessarily mean a lot from, a, you know, from, a, from an idea of, um, okay, well, the pipe burst, right? Imagine the environmental effects that happens from that, right? Because now I have, you know, whether it be gasoline or crude oil or however, right, I'm actually having that is now spilling into the environment. Well, the problem is, is I can't shut that down. So it's going to continue to do that right, until someone can actually go out to that site and either manually shut it off, right, or try to seal the leak or something of that nature happens. So John mentioned the Purdue model, and I've talked about this in other podcasts. For example, episode 22, Applying Zero Trust OT Systems. High level, it's a segmentation model that starts at level five, which is enterprise internet connected, and through level three or 3.5 in the middle, which is a DMZ and maybe air-gapped, on down to level zero, which is the field device themselves. This segmentation, it's important to keep the remote hackers from getting to the critical resources themselves. Now, I've only heard of this with energy and water utilities, but I imagine it's used elsewhere where there's physical or logical segmentation. So I, I've been with companies right in the past that I, I wrote a segmentation model directly around Purdue, right? So Purdue, believe it or not, in, in most companies, right, whether you're in the manufacturing you know, business, right, um, you're in pharmaceutical business and manufacturing, um, you're in oil and gas, energies, you know, things like that, it actually becomes a staple, right? Um, if you think about it, uh, Purdue model has had, you know, roughly about three or four names across the board. Um, it started as ISA 95, right? It kind of moved into ISA 99. There's an IEC standard, you know, to that now. We still know it as Purdue. Um, there's a little bit of nuances, right, between some of those models. Um, you know, you have levels, you know, kind of one through five. Uh, and then now we've started shunting in things like level three and a half for demilitarized zone or for jump boxes and so forth that kind of allow, you know, the carpeted floor, right, or the IT enterprise infrastructure uh, to be able to access certain things in OT. Uh, and that's kind of been the evolution of it. But if you actually go back to the core of what the way of the way that architecture looks, 
Um, it's a lot of what we did back in the 90s and early 2000s with how we protected the enterprise architecture, right? You had a firewall, you had a demilitarized zone, right? That's where I would put web servers and so forth. I had a hidden inside trusted network, right? And I had the untrusted network of the outside, right? So we're still applying you know, a technology and an architecture that is, that it was, was, is pretty much dated, right? We developed, we developed this in the nineties, right? And here it is 2023. And we're still utilizing something like that today. We've shifted away from that in IT because it's very, um, it's very insecure now, right? New technologies and new threats, right? Are, are able to bypass, you know, a lot of what that architecture is. So how do we bring the, the new architecture that we've, that we've brought to bear in, in 2023 for IT, how can we bring something like that back to OT while still adhering toward that to that architecture? Because we can't go in and just upheave the architecture today, right? That's a massive cost to companies. So how can we bring new technologies in, still adhere to that, but make it easy to do a network transformation and better secure the OT technology, right? With Colonial, though, if their accounting system was attacked, I would think that the segmentation would give them the confidence that the pipeline itself wouldn't be attacked. Yeah, it, it would have absolutely been that, right? Because if I'd have had the segmentation controls, my blast radius would have actually been um, contained, right, you know, within the IT infrastructure itself, right? So that gets back into, um, as we see more and more of this, what you were calling about weaponization, right? We're starting to see that IT, right, is spreading into OT. So we're locking down IT today. Right. We're making it so ransomware and, you know, and, and software that that might be able to exfil data. Right. And, and potential insider threats and things like that. They're becoming or they're trying to become non-existence on the IT side. What are we doing on the OT environment? Right. We're not really doing anything to really, um, you know, help. Right. There's there's companies out there that, that do that and allow you to see that kind of traffic. Right. But we're not really taking a lot of the IT controls that we have to the OT side. And we're not doing that because of things like um, the fear of, let's take zero trust, for instance, the fear that zero trust would potentially stop or or even um, I would say hinder communication, right? You know, between you know two different, uh, like an I, like a ICS appliance, right? Or and it's in device, right? Or, or whatever may be going on there. We're not. We're saying that if I break that, my organization lose money. So I have to implicitly trust it. Well, the problem is, is that we should be explicitly trusting that, and we can go in and we have the controls now to be able to map that data, right, and map that traffic flow. Why don't we start looking at, you know, putting stuff in that that can help solve that, right, to enhance a lot of the security controls that are already there today and make them more relevant, right, in today's environment versus giving someone a blanket, um, you know, setup, right, and monitoring traffic. And they were kind of looking at it like an IDS standpoint, like we know that's doing something bad, but we can't take it off the network. Well, if I have zero trust there, we know that's doing something bad. The blast radius is significantly contained, which is cool for us, right? Where it's great. And then during the downtime, I can go and remediate that device because now I don't have the worry of that device propagating an OT or even from the IT side, right? I don't have the worry that that device will ever propagate to OT, right? And that being a wide open network, right? Within a manufacturing facility. So the mapping of enterprise IT to this brave new world of IoT and OT and so forth there's a lot of implicit trust in the devices themselves. They don't have antivirus. And you're basically depending on the manufacturer of that device to provide security updates if necessary. So 
let's take uh let, let's I, i'll shift a little bit and i'll talk about medical devices because this is very much prominent in the medical device industry right versus it being like in manufacturing like i said manufacturing 60 year old appliances right 60 year old devices and they're just now coming on in medical a lot of times we see things like uh purpose-built um you know solutions such as mri machines cat scans right things like that these are million dollar systems, right? Plus that hospitals have to invest in the medical industry invests in, right? You know, across board. Um, there are still medical devices out there like MRI machines that are using Windows XP, right? And maybe Windows 7 now because they figure out a way to upgrade it um, to control that device. Well, Windows XP has been gone for, for years, right? It, it's, no, it's not been supported forever. Windows 7 is not even being supported, right? We're in now in Windows 10 and Windows 11. But you can't upgrade that computer, right, for instance, right? This gets exactly what you were talking about. You can't upgrade that computer because the machine that was provided by, you know, whatever medical company that's out there, right, for a CAT scan they can't upgrade the firmware on that particular computer. So if they upgrade the operating system and the security controls, right, you know, from the from the head end unit, it will stop talking, right? Or the risk is, is that it will stop talking to that $1 million machine, right, that's there. And so support starts becoming very hairy at that point because if I can't upgrade the machine, right, and the operating system that lives on that machine, how do I upgrade the, the surrounding ecosystem, right, to be able to protect that? And you can't. That's where we start getting back into a lot of the, the IoT and the OT architectures, right, coming back down to Purdue and things of that nature, where we start actually saying we have to start doing that segmentation. But once again, we're still um, we're, we're still at a, at a vulnerability state, right, because um, as, a, as I have some really good friends of mine um, in the IoT industry, they say um, those devices will be in inherently vulnerable, you know, almost in perpetuity because we can't. You're, you're right. We can't upgrade those devices and we're relying on the manufacturer. And then the manufacturer says, we've produced something new. We're not going to go back and worry about the old device that we sold you five years ago. That was purpose built. Sorry, you can buy our new device now, which is another million dollars. Although with the Patch Act, which I talked more about in episode 17, Hacking Personal Medical Devices, newer devices introduced in the United States will be required by law to show how secure they are and how they will be supported throughout the life cycle of that device. It will be, right? And that, what's really cool of I'm seeing around that is, is that a lot of these IoT devices that we're seeing come into the industry today, um, they, of course, now they have Wi-Fi, right? You know, they're they're having, you know, NIT cards there. They're coming onto the environment more and more. Um, but you're also seeing that the control units, right, they control a lot of those IoT devices, um, now has the ability to push patches. Well, I was talking with a uh, with an energy company here not too long ago, and and one of the questions I asked them was, how do you push the patches to the machines that have to push the patches to the end device? And they're like, that's a really good question because a lot of times in IoT and OT environments, they're air-gapped, right? So I have to walk my laptop in. So are you flying someone out to each one of these stations, right? Are you sending someone out to each one of the hospitals? Are you sending someone out to each manufacturing plant, right? You know, that has to do a lot of this stuff. And they're like, no, that's not feasible. So we're still in a in, in a state, right, you know, from a, from an OT environment where things aren't being patched because it's not feasible to do so due to the cost that we're having to incur just to go patch them because someone has to physically plug their laptop into that network. 
The other thing I uh, I found interesting was, and, and this was actually kind of a shock to me um, that a company would even think about this, is that they were like, well, what is that? What if that laptop's compromised? I'm like, well, it's your it's your IT laptop, right? You know, how would that be compromised? And they were like, well, you know, we have all these wonderful tools and so forth, but we run a risk if someone just takes that laptop, you know, there and, and, and pushes that. So hence the reason why, you know, level three and a half lives in the Purdue model now is for those jump boxes and where those systems live. So you still have to be very careful with how you're uploading, you know, files, right? And uploading patches and then pushing that down into the end device, right? But yeah, I mean, we're, we're still at a state right now where people are still trying to, uh, for the lack of a better term, they're still trying to figure out, um, you know, what's the best process for that, right? And, you know, and how do I gain entry into those networks, especially if potentially if it's remote? So we started this episode by commenting that enterprise IT doesn't directly map to this new world of IoT and OT. Are there ways in which it's being adapted? I see a lot of companies trying to, and uh, so, and, and I'm I'm going to be brutally honest. A lot of companies try and fail, and it's because it's it's not. It's, it's not because their, their product is bad, right? It's not because their product is, is, you know, unable to do, you know, what they're trying to do. It's because a lot of people um, who try to map IT controls, right, and IT solutions into the OT environment, think of it as if they're coming from the IT side. They don't necessarily understand the OT environment itself. So they're taking... I know Windows and antiviral and I know how to look at security cameras and, you know, I look at HVAC systems and things like that. And I can segment that. So when I walk into the OT environment, that's what you talk about. The problem is, is that OT environment has been purpose built. Right. And most people don't understand what those controls really are. And of course, you know, finding someone who who can talk about the NIST, um, you know, requirements for that, or talk about you know, SCADA requirements and so forth. In the IT, we just don't research that. We don't know it, right? So we're coming in with what we think is a solution from IT, um, and it somewhat maps. But like a lot of said, a lot of times it fails. You really have to have someone who is who who knows the OT industry. So kind of walking that back a minute. Um, we're seeing that quite a bit. Um, it really kind of comes down to, you know, uh, products and services that are very versatile um, and, and how they're deployed, right? And kind of how you can, you can I, I want to call them morphogenic, right? So you can morph them into what the customer's requirements are in that OT environment. The other side of that, and one of the reasons why they fail is no OT environment is the same. They might have the same top-level architecture. It might have the Purdue model, and they adhere to that. But where they place things and what they do with their OT is completely different from customer to customer. I've seen it as much as it's completely different from site to site because they're air-gapped. I've got a specialized OT guy who, who manages this. He architects site A one way, and the guy who sits at site B architected it a different way right so there's no you don't even have you know uh you know policy and congruence and you know kind of the like for like even within the same organization so you've got to have a, a product right or solution um or a suite of products that can literally fit in just about everything and then you can start bringing compliance right in a singular architecture around because if you if solution a fits very well in in, in site a 
but solution A doesn't fit for site B, you have a different solution for site B. And then you can't have that standard architecture any longer. And you're right back to where we are today. So what about security around IoT? What we're doing uh, on the IoT side, how we're mitigating things like what we've seen, like with the target breach, right? And what we've seen with um, um, breaches like in, in retail for Home Depot and so forth, where it, that type of stuff happened on the uh, on the PCI segment, right? You know, because that's still IoT itself card readers and things like that. So how are we, you know, addressing, you know, kind of what those breaches look like as well as how are we taking IoT and OT standards, right, in in architectures and we're applying compliance back to that, right? You know, that's the to me, right, uh, you know, that's that's a big thing, right, today is how do I put compliance into a segment of of technology that's never had to work with compliance in the past? Right. Or it has and we've never architected the environments right accordingly to adhere to what that compliance is. We've always kind of mandated that the the appliance itself is PCI. Right. Or it has or, or something of that nature. So I don't have to worry about my network. John mentioned air gap a few times. And I know within InfoSec, air gaps generally can be defeated. I can defeat an air gap by walking into a customer facility and dropping a flash drive in. Right. Um, the, the weakest link of any network, right, is the human elements, right? And we, we just call that what it is. Um, you know, I was, when I was at DEF CON, I, uh, I saw, uh, one of the most craziest things, right? They, they did a vishing competition, right? And not fishing, but vishing. And of course they're calling, you know, um, the, these organizations and they're, they're getting this low level person. And this low level person is talking about how they get into everything because they don't have the security awareness, right? So, um, the, the crazy part about that is, is that, like I said, the, the human element is always the weakest link, right? So if you strengthen IT controls, right, you know, whether it be an IOT or OT or however, right, you strengthen the controls there, you bring in zero trust, right? You do your, your, your software defined segmentation. We did this kind of started in 1.0, right? When we started bringing out NAC and security group tagging, right? And things like that, because now I can deliver a tag and I, or I can deliver a downloadable ACL, right? You know, to that switch port and what, and, and control from a network pr perspective, what that device does now with more of the software defined stuff and allowing software to do that for us at, at an accelerated rate, you know, with AI and, and all the goodies that we have out there now, I can now understand too, not only, right? You know, does that device only have uh, access to certain applications or certain resources as necessary? I can also do analytics against the traffic to understand, is that traffic malicious, right? Is the head-end device that it's talking to, is it sending out malicious packets? I can also see indicators of compromise now, like why is that control arm, right? Or why is that heart pump or MRI machine, or why is that POS system, you know, calling out to the net, right? and trying to send data, right? Is it doing data Excel? That's automatically being blocked, but now I can have, you know, the logs and now I can utilize IT technology, right? To be able to do the investigation there to understand if that was actually benign or right, or was it really malicious, right? And was it data Excel? So how do you map this new IT security to third-party HVAC systems? Um, it, it, so first off, right, we have to look at segmentation. That is the crux of everything. And, and now we're getting into more of where we're, um, we, we kind of went with segmentation 1.0, right, where everything had a VLAN. Um, 
And then, of course, VLANs can't talk to each other logically, right, within most switches. I have to have a layer three switch. I have to convert something there. Um, and then we said, you know, we're going to put these, you know, wonderful um, L3, L4 um, policies, right, these access lists and try to do all that type of stuff. Um, we, we've rapidly accelerated that, right, you know, with the use of NAC and things of that nature. And now we're coming into more dynamic segmentation, right, or software-defined segmentation, um, where we're actually able to to identify devices, right? We're actually able to apply security policy to that device, right? And we're actually, once again, I talk about the blast radius, right? I can decrease the blast radius, right? If something was to happen. So case in point, right? You have a, uh, um, like a, a POS system, right? Um, you know, I'm scanning my cards, right? Unfortunately, that was compromised somewhere in supply chain, um, so it has a version of an operating system on there that is actually exfilling, you know, customer data, right? It's taking those credit cards and it's actually shipping them off. With things today and what we're doing with uh, with dynamic um, or, or software-defined segmentation and dynamic segmentation, right? Because we've now been able to apply security policy, right? Or, or I would say next-gen security policy. Well, now we can start applying next-gen firewalling policy as well. So now I can start looking at the statistics of that traffic, the behavior of that traffic. I can use user and entity behavior analytics, right? Or things like UEBA or things like that to understand, should that be calling out to a dark website? I can see the URL, right? Um, I, at that point, um, if it's calling out to some, you know, miscellaneous character, I can now stop things of that nature, right? So now I'm actually able to bring compliance to the networking side, Right. And I don't have to rely on the device itself being hardened. Right. I can take a little bit more of an active stance right within my environment. Um, and this is for any device. Right. Whether it be medical, it be, you know, financial. Right. And so forth. I can now take an active stance within my network to give an extra layer of defense. Right. To be able to define what that traffic does. Now, imagine being able to take that from an IT perspective and being able to implement that in OT. Right. And give you those statistics of what that device is doing and be able to do that that macro and micro segmentation. Right. Based upon the identity of the device and then how that device operates on the environment. I'd like to thank John Taylor for coming on the show and explaining how you can't just map OT systems to traditional enterprise security and how we might address that in the future as new devices and the cloud offer new ways of securing the infrastructure sectors. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like narrative information security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. Hey, I've got some great episodes coming up, including using EDRs to attack enterprises, breaking the GitHub pipeline, and more on IoT and OT, of course. Subscribe today. I don't want you to miss out. <laughs>